Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscum All, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I am your host, T. Greg Doucette, and we have good news. We are back in studio here with Mike the Sound Guy, broadcasting to you from the heart of downtown Durham, North Carolina. Uh, but we also have bad news. This is going to be a very brief podcast. We're not going to be in the studio for long. And the uh, the reason why is that this is a very hectic time of year uh, for Mike and I both. In my case, I, I think I mentioned it on Twitter. I don't know if I've mentioned it on the podcast, uh, but every spring I volunteer with my alma mater, the North Carolina Central University School of Law, to train uh, 3L and 2L law students on trial advocacy. So there is a competition each year called the American Association for Justice Student Trial Advocacy Competition, and we are doing, uh, I've been basically coaching them since January. Competition is going to be the first Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday of March. So as we're getting close to that, we have more practice time, more dress rehearsals and that sort of thing. Um, so I don't have much time to be in the studio because I'm going to be at the school and of course still running my law firm. And in Mike's case, Mike has gotten, would you call it a promotion? A side, what the fuck is a side motion? Okay. So basically Mike has gotten, it's not a new job. You're still basically doing the same thing. Okay. So he's, he's doing the same stuff with the same employer. Uh, he does sound stuff. If you couldn't tell the same thing he does with us. Uh, but he has a new client, I guess, a new project. There we go. A new project that he was working on, uh, that will include a pay hike in exchange for working a lot more hours because he's salaried. So technically they can make him work the hours anyway, but, uh, he basically doesn't have as much time to sneak me into the studio and allow me to use their equipment like we normally do. So what we're going to do, this is not really a, a mini pod per se, because the Puerto Rico mini pod was only like 10 minutes. This will probably be a smidge longer. Um, but what we're going to do is have political talk today. Uh, sorry if you expected something more. This is just going to be about politics. Uh, and then on Thursday, we will have a separate episode on criminal justice fuckery, and I will try and get together a Law 140. I'm not sure what the topic's going to be yet, but that's the plan, is to have both of those ready to go for you on Thursday. We will see. Uh, also, some podcast notes. Uh, first, thank you to everyone who gave us a rating or a review. We did surpass the 150 mark. I can't remember if I announced that or not. We were trying to beat 150 ratings by the end of January. We are currently at 157, so I appreciate that. And on Twitter, uh, I announced that we were trying to surpass 100,000 downloads as of the last episode, and we did that. We're now at 101,000 downloads since we started the podcast, uh, which comes out to give or take 2,200-ish per episode because you had the 47 that were available on the main website. The bonus episodes on Patreon don't get factored into that download total. Uh, it's a totally arbitrary metric, but I thought it was pretty friggin' cool for something that we've been doing for basically nine and a half months now, give or take. Uh, so it, we're, and we're also slightly accelerating because like the 50,000 download mark came, I want to say like five and a half months in and the, the second 50,000 was four months later. So we're slightly accelerating, uh, very excited, totally stoked, um, but thank you to everyone for listening, for sharing, for spreading the word. It means a lot for this to be a, a more or less totally bootleg operation. 
you've got two guys uh, piecing this together, you know, willy nilly without any particular structure, uh, as evidenced by the fact that this is going to be a mini podcast of sorts. Um, so to have a hundred thousand people listening to us, well, a hundred thousand downloads from roughly two thousand ish people listening to us uh, is pretty doggone cool. So, all right, let's go ahead and get started. If you have not already done so, please make sure to join the conversation online. We are on Twitter at Fiskamall. That is at F S C K E M A L L. You can leave us a comment on our website, Fiskamall.com. That's F S C K E M A L L dot com. And if you would like to support us financially, oh gosh, that was another ballpark uh, metric thing. Uh, we are at seventy five patrons now on our Patreon account, patreon.com slash FSCK. We set a goal of 150. Once we had 150 patrons, we were going to start doing episodes twice a week. We set that goal back in June. So we're now halfway there, which is pretty cool. I figured we would actually hit that mark by the two year mark. And, and to have it halfway there in less than a year is awesome. We'll hope that trend continues. But yes, the Patreon page for some bonus episodes and other stuff is patreon.com slash FSCK. So as I mentioned in the beginning, we're only going to talk about politics this episode. And specifically, we're only going to talk about two issues. Um, I was going to do them in reverse order. You may have noticed from the title of the podcast uh, that we were probably going to be talking about the Russia investigation, and we're going to get to that. But I want to switch it around and talk a little bit about this school shooting down in Parkland, Florida. Uh, so back on Valentine's Day, a kid named Nicholas Cruz, he was 19 years old. Uh, he had been expelled from the school, apparently had some kind of issues going on with his ex-girlfriend. The particular details are a bit shaky. Uh, but essentially, he went to the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, armed with a rifle, a mask, some explosives, and pulled the fire alarm so that as people were leaving for the day, this happened in late afternoon as school was getting out anyway, as folks were leaving, he basically opened fire, shot 32, I think is the current count, killed 17, injured 15 more, and then melted into the group of fleeing students so he was able to avoid being captured at the time that this all went down. Uh, Of course, This has, as more stuff comes out, and this is true in a lot of cases when it comes to these shootings, you realize that a lot of red flags, warning signs were basically ignored. Uh, To give you some quotes from some of the news compilations, uh, quote, a former classmate said that Cruz had anger management problems and often joked about guns and gun violence, including shooting up establishments. Cruz also bragged about killing animals. A neighbor said Cruz's mother will call the police over to the house to try to talk some sense into him. Uh, The sheriff of Broward County described Cruz's online profiles as, quote, very, very disturbing. Uh, The Florida Department of Children and Families investigated Cruz in September of 2006 for Snapchat posts in which he had cut both of his arms and said he planned to buy a gun. Uh, State investigators have reported that Cruz has depression, autism, and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, but nonetheless assessed that he was not a risk to himself or the public. Uh, Cruz's YouTube videos include a number of violent threats, such as, quote, I want to die fighting, killing a shit ton of people. Uh, Threats against police officers and Antifa and an admiration of the University of Texas tower shooting. Uh, He left a comment on another user's YouTube video back in September of 2017 saying, quote, I'm going to be a professional school shooter. 
which prompted the user to report him to the FBI, but the FBI was unable to identify him, supposedly after conducting a database check. Uh, police have said that Cruz holds, quote, extremist views, and his social media accounts are believed to be linked, uh, or rather, the social media accounts believed to be linked to him contain anti-black and anti-Muslim slurs and a private Instagram group he titled, quote, Murica Great. He advocated killing Mexicans, blacks, and gays. He said his hate for black people was, quote, simply because they were black. And he referred to white women in interracial relationships as traitors. So this, of course, has prompted another totally fucking useless discussion about gun control in the country. You have on the pro-gun side of it, idiots like your attorney general, attorney general Beauregard, Jefferson Beauregard Sessions III, uh, who actually blamed gangs. He blamed gang violence for the school shooting, which is the dumbest fucking thing. Like he said a lot of dumb shit. All right. But this really takes the cake that after a school shooting where there's absolutely no evidence at all of any gang involvement, uh, he was speaking to some sheriff's group or something like that recently where he was insisting that gangs were involved. I was going to give you a clip, but it was so idiotic. I just I didn't have the patience to actually clip it and have Mike put it in. Uh, But then, of course, you have people who don't pay any fucking attention to law enforcement on the anti-gun side. Uh, talking. So I'll give you an example. There was one tweet that we talked about on Twitter uh, earlier today where someone said, quote, every school needs at least six police officers and metal detectors at every entrance issue resolved. L O fucking L, especially when your students are more likely to be victims of school resource officers than they are to be saved by them. So I decided to put together a handy little thread cataloging some of the greatest hits of local SROs like the Durham deputy who was fucking one particular student as a way of protecting her, Uh, the deputy in Wake County that choked out a student on video, the deputy in Wake County that body slammed a black girl on video, Uh, another deputy in Wake County that slammed another student on video, the guy down in South Carolina that ripped the black girl from her desk and flung her across the room, the officer in Reno, Nevada that shot a 14-year-old dead in a school courtyard with students standing around. We've got a long list that we have covered on this podcast just since May, and there are many, many more since then. And then, of course, you have the professional anti-gun folks who just tweet out, you know, patently disingenuous shit. Like, there's a claim going around that we have had 18 school shootings so far this year, and that's just totally wrong. This has no basis, in fact. We've had three. Now, that's three too many. Don't misunderstand me. One school shooting is one school shooting too many. But what they're doing to define a school shooting is any discharge of a firearm anywhere near school grounds, regardless if school is actually in session or not. It's very similar to the story we had a few podcasts back about how the government is deliberately arranging drug buys in school zones to get the enhanced mandatory minimums, even though there are no students around, which was the entire purpose for having these particular laws in the first place. So, you know, this whole, we go through this conversation every time there's a mass shooting, and even when there's not, and it's totally useless because neither side particularly cares about the policy. They're more concerned about the issue. And I I kind of have a, a feeling of distaste for the whole thing because, frankly, if you can't have a regulation, if you're not smart enough to come up with a potential regulation that would somehow ensnare this kid and other shooters believe me out of it, then fuck you. 
I mean, that's really what it comes down to. If you think I should go to jail, if you think my clients should go to jail because you're not willing to put in the time and effort to contemplate how a proper regulatory regime would pan out, I don't really have any interest in having a discussion with you about the topic. You know, I'm actually, I'm defending a student here now where he got attacked his sophomore year, severely injured. He got jumped by a gang his junior year, severely injured, and he decided to buy a gun. You know, that guy does not need to be in jail because he happens to own a firearm because he's not a threat. So if you can't figure out how to get this cruise kid while leaving my black client out of it, then you're not really in a position to offer an opinion, frankly, from my standpoint. Because the fact is, running the government, passing laws, crafting regulations, is complex work. It's not easy. You have a lot of people who will say, oh, I don't care about the details, I just want the end result to change. Well, that, that doesn't make any sense. That's like saying, I want to lose weight, but I don't want to know the details about how to actually lose weight. I don't want to understand how calories and exercise work. It's just stupid. It's a sign of intellectual laziness, and that's the bulk of what our political discourse has turned into. You know, Take, for example, people want to ban semi-automatic weapons. You hear that a lot. It's in every fucking news article. He used a semi-automatic weapon. Y'all, a semi-automatic is nearly every single gun that's used. You have on one side your revolvers, and the way a revolver works is that you pull the trigger, the barrel rotates at the same time the hammer cocks back, and then when you hit a certain point where the barrel lines up, the hammer goes forward and fires the bullet. All right, that's a pure mechanical operation where you get one bullet per trigger pull. On the other extreme, you have what are called automatic weapons, the ones used by the military, where you just hold the trigger down and it keeps on firing. Guess what? Automatic weapons are already illegal. They've been illegal for a very long time. In order for you to get one, you have to go through a totally elaborate and ridiculously expensive licensing background check regime in place to the point where you really don't see automatic weapons out there. They're, they exist, but they're mostly used by the military, kept on base, and they're not in the civilian population. A semi-automatic is everything else. What it means is, rather than being a pure mechanical setup like you have with a revolver, it uses the recoil of a one bullet firing to chamber the next round. So the rifle that this kid used, my Smith & Wesson MMP9 that we've talked about in a prior podcast, all of those are semi-automatics. Every handgun, every rifle, just about everything that is used for civilians is a semi-automatic. So when you say that you want to ban these weapons, you want to criminalize people who possess them, what you're saying is, I need to go to jail. To which I say, fuck you. Same deal with assault weapons. You know, every gun is an assault weapon. That's the reality of it. Guns exist to assault people. Or they exist to assault animals or both. But the fact is, that's why they're there. There are some things that just exist for that purpose. So how are we defining what an assault weapon is? If you look, for example, at the assault weapons ban that was signed under Bill Clinton, that thing basically just regulated cosmetic features. Now, you don't have to take my word for it. There's actually a, um, there's a lot of YouTube videos. And what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to give you a link to one uh, out of Massachusetts where the local ABC affiliate uh, actually went to the local gun shop and said, hey, Massachusetts has some of the most strict gun laws in the country. And they compared what is an illegal assault weapon from what is a totally legal hunting rifle. And you will, you will laugh at the absurdity of what is being criminalized. 
So you get the same type of results when people say they want to ban military-style weapons. Well, again, we're talking cosmetics because military actual weapons, as opposed to military-style weapons, military actual weapons are already banned. You can't have an automatic rifle in this country. Can you have a military-style weapon? Sure, but why does that matter? Why does it matter if I've got one that only looks like a military gun, even if it's not? Why is that something you're trying to prohibit me from having? You know, the common discussion here is the AR-15. Now, AR does not mean assault rifle. I don't care what anyone tells you. AR stands for Armalite Rifle. Armalite was the company that actually created it, and it's a weapons platform. It is not a particular brand of gun. It's similar to a, uh, a Macintosh computer where you can add peripherals, you can change the operating system, but the fact is it's a platform that you build off of. So it's a semi-automatic style of weapon. It's no different than my pistol. You get one bullet for each pull of the trigger, but you can add a suppressor, something that reduces the noise. It's still loud as hell, but it's not going to make me go deaf when I use one. They have rail mounts to add a light so you can use it in the dark. You can add a scope, that sort of thing. So when people say we want to ban military-style weapons, they're concerned about how it looks. Well, if you're concerned about how it looks, you're not actually concerning its lethality. You're not bothering to care about whether or not someone can actually use it to kill dozens of people fairly quickly. And that becomes part of the problem, is that we start talking about things that make no damn sense. So I'll, I'll give you a good example of the lingo and how the mismatch is really, you know, how it has a practical effect on political debate. Uh, Ken White, we've talked about him a lot. He is at Popat on Twitter. He has a blog entry from a few years ago called Talking Productively About Guns. Uh, and I'm going to give you the link to that. I want you to read it. Just take some time, read through it. It's not bad. Uh, Ken, I don't know Ken's politics. He always kind of struck me as a liberal, frankly, but some people seem to think he's a conservative. Uh, I don't actually know. I've not bothered to ask him because, frankly, I don't really want to know. I like, in my mind, thinking that he's a, uh, he's a California liberal. But essentially, it highlights that if you don't know what you're talking about, you end up closing off conversation with people that you ultimately need to persuade to get anything done. Uh, so we'll give you that link as well. But essentially, it's what you got. You have no trust on either side of the gun debate because of stuff like this. So, for example, and, and this hurts people on both sides of the issue, because if you look at the pro-gun folks, they will end up using these people as examples of what we would call gun grabbers, you know, these boogeymen that make you want to give up all of your weapons that in turn prompt gun owners to go buy more guns, buy more ammo, make sure they give money to politicians who will vote against new gun regulations, make sure they show up to town halls, make sure they contact people, make sure they get active on social media. It's a pure reflex reaction triggered, I hate to use that term, sorry, uh, prompted, if you will, I don't want to use a pun there, but prompted by people who just are well-meaning, but haven't bothered to care to understand what the hell they're talking about. But it also hurts the anti-gun folks because they're relying on legislators to pass laws that if you don't know what you're trying to criminalize, you end up creating a load of horseshit. You know, we used to have this thing called the Gun-Free Zones uh, Act. Is that the name? Gun-Free School Zones Act? Whatever it was. The case that was in uh, U.S. v. Lopez, Supreme Court decision where it was held unconstitutional, you know, that was one of those issues where the law that was written was written poorly, and because of that, the Supreme Court struck it down. The assault weapons ban I mentioned earlier is another perfect example of it. You know, the AWB 
was passed in 91 or 92? No, it's 94. I was wrong. It was passed in 94. It was prompted by a California school shooting back in 1989. You know, back at Cleveland Elementary School, a guy shot uh, 37 people, which just for purposes of comparison is actually more than were shot in Florida. So this has been a long-time problem in the country. Uh, but killed five children, shot 32 others. And oddly enough, that happened almost 10 years to the day after a separate school shooting in San Diego, also at a school called Cleveland Elementary School. Uh, so Cleveland Elementaries were dangerous no matter where you were in California. Uh, but essentially that prompted Congress to enact this assault weapons ban. And I won't, I won't get into too deep in the details, but essentially you would have a declared in the law uh, it, it was an assault weapon if it had two of any number of certain characteristics. So if the uh, barrel was rifled, which is basically it's a way so you can actually attach a suppressor to it. Uh, if it had that and, as an example, a telescoping stock, which basically just meant that the, the stock is the rear part of the gun that goes up against your shoulder when you're using the rifle. If that could move, you could extend it or retract it, make it what's called telescoping. That made it an assault weapon. So all you'd have to do is just create a fixed stock and have the exact same features, and it's now no longer an assault weapon. You know, so the lack of knowledge of the terminology and how this stuff pans out in practice um, becomes a problem. And the assault weapons ban is another good example because if you look at the data, there's no actual evidence that the AWB actually impacted crime. It didn't have any impact on crime at all. What it did was it led to more minorities and more poor people being put in jail because they would have a gun for their own protection or living in a high-crime neighborhood or whatever else, it would violate this ban. And now all of a sudden, you're not just a criminal, you're a federal criminal. And the federal government doesn't really offer much in terms of mercy when you end up in their crosshairs. So had no impact on crime, ended up criminalizing a lot of people who should not have been criminalized. Now, if you're willing to educate yourself in a nutshell, if you're willing to have an open-minded discussion without, you know, like the moms demand action people who will call me a child murderer because I have an MP9, um, there are some things that can be done. You know, first, it helps if we actually enforce the existing laws. And I know people hear this a lot and they hear it so much they don't think it's actually a thing. They think it's just a talking point. But the fact is buying a gun and owning a gun are some of the most heavily regulated things you can do in this country. There are local laws, there are state laws, and there are federal laws on the books, and you've got to follow all of them. Anyone who tells you it's super easy to buy a gun is lying to you. Because if it's easy, what that means is they've got a completely spotless record, they've got a lot of money, they've got the requisite training, whatever else. Because the fact is, or someone's breaking the law, frankly, because you sometimes will have that happen as well. But there are a ton of gun laws on the books, no matter what state you happen to be in. And in this particular case, you know, you look at this kid down in Florida, as many red flags as were put up about his mental health and whatever else, if he were classified as a threat, which he should have been, he wouldn't be allowed to own a weapon. Because, for example, here in North Carolina, I had to pass a mental health background check and a criminal background check and go through a separate process for training where I watched a god-awful video and had a live fire uh, practice with a retired police chief before I ever got my gun. I had to go through all of that stuff, you know, and the red flags were here in this case, but they were legitimately totally ignored. Felons are not allowed to own guns. So this kid was communicating threats online, never charged, because no one ever bothered to connect the dots. 
You can also do some new stuff. I mean, shit, adjust availability of weapons by age. That's something that Massachusetts does. You know, we, we don't let people drive until they're 16. They don't get to vote until they're 18. They don't get to drink until they're 21. There are all sorts of rights that have been legally conditioned upon you attaining a certain age. The fact that you can't have a certain gun until a certain age doesn't necessarily offend the Constitution. But that needs to at least be logical, because if you look at Massachusetts as an example, that story that I mentioned to you we're going to link in the show notes, you can buy a rifle at 15, but you can't buy a pistol until you're in your 20s. That doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to me personally, but again, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a handgun enthusiast. I don't particularly care for rifles, so maybe it's just me that thinks that's weird. But then you also can set up a process for revoking guns from people who are at risk of hurting themselves or others. You know, you can set up a court procedure to go through that. They're called gun uh, restraining orders or gun violence restraining orders, rather, GVROs. You know, this is something that could, we already do it in domestic violence capacities, where in North Carolina, for example, if someone is accused of domestic violence, you can get an order taking away their guns immediately pending a hearing. And then you have a hearing where the judge has to decide if that order should stay in place for a year, and then it can be renewed for several years after that. You can do that in other capacities as well, and what that does is it tailors the restrictions to the person. Because what you see in this particular case, and we see it after every time there's any kind of gun crime, is this notion of collective, collective punishment. That one person fucks up and we have to punish everybody. And I, I just don't believe in that as a criminal defense attorney. You know, I didn't believe it before I became a defense attorney, but I certainly don't believe in it now. You know, it, it's not something where we curtail everybody's free speech rights because a Nazi happens to be an asshole. The same principle applies to guns and every other right you have. Someone else screwing up should not affect you if you were a law-abiding citizen. So the notion of a gun violence restraining order is a legitimate thing that is actually doable that preserves due process, preserves individual liberty, but enables a way to stop people like this kid here who's going around online threatening people all the time from having a weapon. You know, Now, you could do all these things. You can do none of these things. But you also have to recognize that the amount of gun access is not necessarily the reason why we have as much gun crime as we do. Now, I know that's not a popular thing to say. There will be a bazillion think pieces out there that you can show me to say that I'm wrong. But the fact is gun deaths have dropped dramatically in this country since the peak in 1993. And if you graph the drop in gun deaths against the number of guns in circulation, they're inverse. You get an X on the graph. As guns have gone up, the number of gun deaths have gone down. Now, we don't know why. I'm not saying that having more guns means less people will die from guns. I don't know if that's the case or not. I have no idea. What I do know is that there's currently no correlation between the number of guns and the number of gun deaths. And the fact is, the reality of it is out of all the people that die of guns in America, two-thirds of them die from suicide. So if we want to address gun violence, a key part of that is figuring out why people want to kill themselves. To have, out of however many people die in this country each year, to have two out of every three choose to take their own life. That's a huge problem. And that kind of brings me to another piece. So we ha we, when we have these discussions, 
we always focus on the guns, and that's fine. I mean, you want to have that discussion, great. But there are other things at play that we don't really talk about and we desperately need to address. You know, our mental health system is a joke. And when I say mental health, I mean that in two different respects. I'm not just talking about people with clinical problems. Although I can tell you from experience with my family that that piece of it sucks as well. I mean, my sister has uh, is a paranoid schizophrenic, and trying to have her be able to live a normal life has been problematic. My parents have gone through hell trying to deal with that. But we also tend to stigmatize the mentally ill and assume that they're more violent than the population at large, and the data just doesn't support that. So I'm not just talking about those people. I think how we treat bona fide clinically ill folks merits discussion and needs fixing. But we've also got to go with this this general mental well-being overall. You know, and I'll give you by way of explaining what I mean, I'm going to give you an example. So, I grew up in a military family. My stepdad spent his career in the Navy. My grandfather did two tours in the Navy before spending his career in the Coast Guard. Uh, I tried to join the Marines myself and ended up breaking my leg. Uh, So, like, there's a long history of military service in my family. It's something I'm accustomed to. And one of the things the military used to spend a fair amount of money on is what's called MWR, which stood for Morale, Welfare, and Recreation. This was essentially the, the outside stuff that the military spent in addition to your salary and housing and everything else. Uh, to make life less miserable for soldiers and their families. So things like the gym, the pool, the library, they would have special events. Like a lot of stuff I went to as a kid and thoroughly enjoyed. Well, that started getting cut dramatically. It started getting cut back during the Clinton years. You had this period that they called the holiday from history where Clinton got the budget surplus he had by dramatically cutting back military spending. Then you had 9-11, and even though military spending went up, MWR spending continued to get cut because money was being shifted to hiring more soldiers and developing more weapons programs. Well, when you take all of that stuff away, you know, we go to work from 8 to 5 or 9 to 5. What do you do from 5 to 9? What do you do, you know, during that other time on weekends when you're not actually doing your job? You need to have an outlet for you to do something meaningful with your life, something enjoyable, something where you can spend time with your family or whatever else without sitting in front of a television or staring at your phone. And the military just kind of said, eh, fuck it, and cut that back dramatically. You can go read Military Times, and there's been plenty of news stories on it over the years. But the effect of that has been to have lower morale, not just among soldiers, but among their families. You end up with more suicides amongst active duty service members, separate and apart from PTSD and veterans. You end up with things like more divorce because parents and their kids are like, you know, I can't continue to deal with you being deployed, plus all this other stuff that would like bring me some sanity is now being taken away as well. We have that same problem outside of the military. And I I didn't really notice it until I got out of college because I went through being in college, dropping out and having like the constant stress of trying to pay bills and then get back into college and then going through college and then law school again. So like I was in this bubble from like 1998 until 2012. But now that I've been out for the past six years, I've noticed that a lot of the 
general mental well-being, the general community, the general sense that even though we're in a competitive environment all the time, we're still all ultimately here for each other, you know, that's missing. I don't know if it's completely gone, but it certainly scaled back a lot from my youth. And that's a problem. I wouldn't be surprised if that's a tremendous impact on some of the violence that we see in our communities. And frankly, if we're being honest with each other, we don't adequately fund the education system. You've got too many kids in too few classrooms with not enough teachers to keep an eye on them, not enough to actually get to know them as students, as individuals, to know what's going on in their home lives. I mean, sure, you have some teachers that go above and beyond and somehow manage to pull that off, but the fact is there's only so much you can do with math. If you've got one teacher and 50 kids, you're not going to have as effective a classroom as if you had one teacher and 20 kids or one teacher and 15 kids. You know, and the same MWR analogy with the Navy applies to school stuff as well, because we're cutting PE, we're cutting chorus, we're cutting all kinds of recreational stuff that doesn't teach uh, STEM programs, you know, your science, your technology, your engineering, your mathematics. It doesn't teach English, but it teaches extra stuff that enables the kids to have fun while they're learning. And in addition to that, we got assholes in public office, y'all. We got a lot of assholes in politics. And if you've ever heard the saying, the fish rots from the head, that's as true as it can be. People emulate the people they see around them in positions of power, whether that's politicians, celebrities, or whatever else. And what you have is you have these shrieking grievance harpies on Fox News, MSNBC, whatever else. They're on 24-hour cable news. You've got a Russian puppet in the White House who takes every chance he can to say whatever crass, crude shit comes up in his head when he's sitting on the toilet. You've got social media that excels at trolling and takedown culture and all this other shit. And that ends up having a consequence, you know, that ends up impacting the students of today, the younger people, the millennials who are growing up inundated with all of this negative stimuli all around them. And frankly, I don't know how to fix that, but it's stupid of us to assume that that doesn't have a consequence on how they're going to see the world and how they're going to react. Now, the reality is you're always going to have outliers, You will always have people who defy the laws that we put in place. But for everyone else, laws have the ability to shape behavior. Laws have the ability to set boundaries on what's acceptable and what's not. And where the law doesn't reach or can't reach, it's societal norms that fill in the balance, that fill in the blanks, that help make sure that even if what you're doing is technically not illegal, it's still morally wrong. And we need to recognize that that's part of our responsibility if we're going to address things like this in the future. Life is complex, and too many people want simple-ass solutions to a complex-ass problem. So that's my thoughts on the school shooting, my, uh, my thoughts and prayers. I say that slightly tongue-in-cheek because I know people complain about it. Uh, but my thoughts and prayers go out to the people who have suffered in that particular incident. Um, I hope if you happen to be one of the people down there listening, you're able to find comfort in the folks around you 
And if you're nearby, you're able to offer assistance and comfort to the people who were affected down in Parkland. So let's talk a little bit about this Russia investigation. This was the main topic of the podcast before the uh, the gun stuff happened. And it's the reason for this particular podcast title. Now, I can't pronounce it, but we have at least three listeners that I know of in Russia. And I've been assured by one of them who is fluent and is a native speaker that it roughly translates to America first. Donald Trump's slogan. It's not perfectly right, he said, because apparently that particular grammar structure is not a thing in Russian. I don't know. I If it's not a an Arabic lettering, I, I can't really understand what the hell, how the shit works anyway. Um, I attribute that to me growing up learning English. I'm sure if I learned a Cyrillic alphabet or whatever else growing up, it would be easier for me to understand. But me trying to grasp a Russian at this point makes my head hurt. So the gist of it is just know Based on good authority, as far as I'm concerned, uh, the podcast title is Russian for America First. Uh, and the reason we picked that as the title is that podcast law required it. Because back on Friday, special counsel Robert Mueller, the former FBI director, and yes, a Republican, uh, publicly released a 37-page indictment of several Russian nationals and entities for uh, basically conspiring to throw the 2016 election to Donald Trump. So I'm going to give you a link to the whole indictment. I want you to read the entire thing word for word, but I have gone through it so that you don't have to and picked about a dozen paragraphs, give or take, that I'm just going to read to you because holy shit, this stuff was elaborate. Uh, so from I'm going to just give you these quotes. Paragraph five, quote, certain defendants traveled to the United States under false pretenses for the purpose of collecting intelligence to inform defendants operations. The defendants in this case are the Russians. Defendants also procured and used computer infrastructure based partly in the United States to hide the Russian origin of their activities and to avoid detection by U.S. regulators and law enforcement. Uh, paragraph 31, in order to collect additional intelligence, defendants and their co-conspirators posed as U.S. persons and contacted U.S. political and social activists. For example, starting in or around June 2016, defendants and their co-conspirators posing online as U.S. persons communicated with a real U.S. person affiliated with a Texas-based grassroots organization. During the exchange, defendants and their co-conspirators learned from this real U.S. person that they should focus their activities on purple states like Colorado, Virginia, and Florida. After that exchange, defendants and their co-conspirators commonly referred to targeting purple states and directing their efforts. Uh, paragraph 33, quote, organization employees referred to as specialists were tasked to create social media accounts that appeared to be operated by U.S. persons. The specialists were divided into day shift and night shift hours and instructed to make posts in accordance with the appropriate U.S. time zone. The organization also circulated lists of U.S. holidays so that specialists could develop and post appropriate account activity. Specialists were instructed to write about topics germane to the United States, such as U.S. foreign policy and U.S. economic issues. Specialists were also directed to create political intensity through supporting radical groups, users dissatisfied with the social and economic situation, and oppositional social movements. 
Paragraph 34, defendants and their co-conspirators created thematic group pages on social media sites, particularly on social media platforms, Facebook and Instagram. Uh, the organization-controlled pages addressed a range of issues, including immigration, with group names including Secured Borders, the Black Lives Matter movement with group names including Blacktivist, religion with group names including United Muslims of America and Army of Jesus, and certain geographic regions within the United States with group names including South United and Heart of Texas. Paragraph 36, defendants and their co-conspirators also created and controlled numerous Twitter accounts designed to appear as if U.S. persons or groups controlled them. For example, the organization created and controlled the Twitter account Tennessee GOP, which used the handle at 10 underscore GOP. The account falsely claimed to be controlled by a U.S. political party. And let me tell you, as someone who ran for office and was on Twitter pretty heavily back in 2016, the 10 GOP Twitter account had a shitload of followers and tweeted all the goddamn time. So I think according to the indictment, they said they had over 100,000 followers online before they were eventually taken down by Twitter. Uh, paragraph 37, to highlight some of the thoroughness that the Soviets put on this, quote, to measure the impact of their social online media operations, or sorry, their online social media operations, defendants and their co-conspirators tracked the performance of content they posted over social media. They tracked the size of the online U.S. audiences reached through the posts. Different types of engagement with the posts, such as likes, comments, and reposts, changes in audience size, and other metrics. The defendants received and maintained metrics reports on certain group pages and individualized posts. Defendants and their co-conspirators also regularly evaluated the content posted by specialists, sometimes referred to as content analysis, to ensure that they appeared authentic, as if operated by U.S. persons. Specialists received feedback and directions to improve the quality of their posts. Defendants and their co-conspirators issued or received guidance on ratios of text, graphics, and video to use in posts, the number of accounts to operate, and the role of each account. For example, differentiating a main account from which to post information and auxiliary accounts to promote a main account through links and reposts. So in addition to this, they stole people's identities. They took their actual identities and social security numbers and used this to open accounts at PayPal in order to actually pay people, including buying advertisements. Uh, paragraph 42, quote, by approximately May 2014, defendants and their co-conspirators discussed efforts to interfere in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Defendants and their co-conspirators began to monitor U.S. social media accounts and other sources of information about the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Now, this timing is interesting because your Papaya POTUS, the beloved Donald Trump, actually sent out a tweet that I'm going to give you later where he's insisting that he didn't know he was running for president back then. Well, folks, got news for you. The U.S. Patent and Trademark Office has an online database that you yourself can search. It's called TESS, T-E-S-S. And if you look it up, you will find, to your shock, I am sure, that Donald Trump filed an application to trademark Make America Great Again back in 2012. In November 2012, he launched his Presidential Exploratory Committee in 2013. So just kind of 
chew on that nugget for a little bit. Paragraph 43, by 2016, defendants and their co-conspirators used these fictitious online personas to interfere with the 2016 U.S. presidential election. They engaged in operations primarily intended to communicate derogatory information about Hillary Clinton to denigrate other candidates such as Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio. Sidebar, those were the two strongest opponents to Donald Trump. Uh, quote, and to support Bernie Sanders and then-candidate Donald Trump. It is interesting to me that the Soviets thought the best way to hurt America uh, was to elect Donald Trump president. you got to kind of wonder why these folks think you are their best hope for ruining this particular country. Uh, so it, it goes on. Like, there's there's a lot. Jesus, there's a lot. And it's, it's hilarious to me because, like, in some particular spots, they actually put money into organizing rallies and they would have rallies on both sides of the issue. So, for example, paragraph 53, in or around late June of 2016, defendants and their co-conspirators used the Facebook group United Muslims of America to promote a rally called Support Hillary, Save American Muslims that was held on July 9th of 2016. At the same time, paragraph 54, in or around June and July 2016, Defendants and their co-conspirators used the Facebook group Being Patriotic, the Twitter account March for Trump, and other organization accounts to organize political rallies in New York. The first was called March for Trump, held on June 25th of 2016. The second was called Down with Hillary, held on July 23rd, 2016. So the Russians had a pro-Trump rally on July 23rd and a pro-Hillary rally on July 26th of the same fucking year. Like, this is the very definition of astroturf, you know, this fake grassroots stuff. And it was engineered by a foreign power. Holy shit. So they've got a, a list here of different advertisements that were done. Um, join our hashtag Hillary Clinton for President 2016. Uh, vote Republican, vote Trump, and support the Second Amendment. Trump is our only hope for a better future. Uh, we cannot trust Hillary to take care of veterans. Among all the candidates, Donald Trump is the one and only who can defend the police from terrorists. It, it just goes on and on and on. So look, there, there's a little question at this point that Trump's victory wouldn't have happened without Russian assistance. That's just the reality. This guy won by like 27,000 votes in three states. That's how he was able to win the Electoral College. He got fucking buried in the popular vote. He lost by several million. But he swung the Electoral College by less than 30,000 votes across a handful of states. And if you look at the volume of people who saw these particular ads, and not just saw the ads, but actually passed that information on to others, because you got to keep in mind with this, we're talking about network effects. We're talking about an ad that you happen to see that regardless of whether you like it, retweet it, share it, whatever else, you go talk to other people about, it influences your activism. You know, we've talked in a prior podcast, the reason why negative advertising works is because it shrinks and polarizes the electorate. It reduces the number of persuadable people who want to get involved at all because they get sick of all the negative advertising. And the people who are going to show up become more polarized, become more active, become more interested. So this type of stuff ended up basically energizing the Trump base in these particular states. And you can tell that the president knows that his victory is going to have an asterisk next to it because the dude has been tweeting his ass off for the past two days, and he just sounds guilty. He absolutely sounds guilty. Let me give you some tweets. So more quotes. Uh, quote, very sad 
that the FBI missed all of the many signals sent out by the Florida school shooter. This is not acceptable. They are spending too much time trying to prove Russian collusion with the Trump campaign. There is no collusion. Get back to the basics and make us proud. First, this is a vile, disgusting fucking tweet that this asshole is trying to capitalize on a tragedy for his own political gain. But it's also totally fucking stupid. You know, it's not like the FBI only has two or three people working there. You got thousands of FBI agents. They're capable of walking and chewing bubble gum at the same time. But anyhow, so H.R. McMaster, who, I, frankly, I don't remember what his title is at this point. We've had so many musical chairs among the administration. He basically, in responding to the report, said, hey, okay, yeah, all right, the Russians attempted to influence the election. So Trump tweeted, quote, General McMaster forgot to say that the results of the 2016 election were not impacted or changed by the Russians and that the only collusion was between Russia and Crooked H, the DNC, and the Dems. Remember the dirty dossier, uranium, speeches, emails, and the Podesta company. Uh, he went on later, quote, I never said Russia did not meddle in the election. I said it may be Russia or China or another country or group, or it may be a 400-pound genius sitting in bed and playing with his computer. The Russian hoax was that the Trump campaign colluded with Russia. It never did. Uh, he continued. Again, all of these are within the past 24 hours, y'all. Uh, he goes, now that Adam Schiff is starting to blame President Obama for Russian meddling in the election, he is probably doing so as yet another excuse that the Democrats, led by their fearless leader, Crooked Hillary, actually lead by their fearless leader because this dumb motherfucker doesn't understand how English works, uh, lead by their fearless leader, Crooked Hillary Clinton, lost the 2016 election. But wasn't I a great candidate? Question mark. Uh, continues, quote, if it was the goal in all caps of Russia to create discord, disruption and chaos within the U.S., then with all of the committee hearings, investigations and party hatred, they have succeeded beyond their wildest dreams. They are laughing their asses off in Moscow. Get smart, America! Exclamation point. Uh, and continuing. Thank you, Ken Starr, former independent counsel, Whitewater, for your insight and powerful words on FISA abuse, Russian meddling, etc. Really great interview with Maria Bartiromo. The dude is cornered. He's got the walls closing in, and he's tweeting like it. And it's hilarious. It's utterly hilarious to me. And it, it's, God, I, I can't, I, I don't even know what I would say in this particular type of case. Like, to grow up and I've said this before, to grow up as a Republican in a military family, in a military city, uh, and spend 20-something years of my life uh, growing up in the Cold War, you know, for a good chunk of the first piece of that, to have a Republican president be co-opted by the KGB and the Russians and supported by the Republicans in Congress, like it just, it's so surreal that blows my mind. It really does. So that is your president. Also, Robert Gates, the partner of uh, Paul Manafort is now going to plead guilty. So the LA times has a story out today where he's going to plead guilty as part of Mueller's probe from the story. It says, quote, a former top aide to Donald Trump's presidential campaign will plead guilty to fraud related charges within days and has made clear to prosecutors that he would testify against Paul Manafort, the lawyer lobbyist who once managed the campaign. The imminent change of Gates's plea follows negotiations over the last several weeks between Green and two of Mueller's prosecutors. Green is uh, Gates's attorney. According to a person familiar with those talks, 
Gates, a longtime political consultant, can expect a substantial reduction in his sentence if he fully cooperates with the investigation. He said Gates is likely to serve about 18 months in prison. The delicate terms reached by the opposing lawyers will not be specified in writing. Gates understands that the government may move to reduce his sentence if he substantially cooperates, but it won't be spelled out. Now, that's not unusual. That's what's called a 5K letter in the U.S. Sentencing Guidelines uh, for substantial cooperation with the government. So to give you an example, I've mentioned before I had that money laundering case in the Middle District of North Carolina where someone helped launder a lot of money. And in exchange for our cooperation, ultimately she got probation. When she started out, she was facing several years of federal time. So it doesn't get spelled out how that's going to play out. But basically, if you do your part, you know, you typically can trust the AUSA, the assistant United States attorney, to honor their word and reflect that to the judge. Uh, so you have all this going on. And, and the interesting piece about it is that unlike Manafort, uh, Gates was around for the entire campaign. So he was brought in when Manafort was made the campaign manager. Manafort was fired soon thereafter, but Gates stayed. So he was the Trump liaison to the Republican National Committee. Uh, he even helped Trump with the inauguration. And he is now the third Trump campaign official uh, who's admitting guilt, not just being charged, but actually admitting guilt. Because remember, you had Michael Flynn who was a foreign policy advisor and the first national security advisor. He actually got a government position. He pleaded guilty. And uh, George Papadopoulos, who was a foreign policy advisor, who is also pleaded guilty. So you now have three Trump campaign officials convicted, uh, one who's still pending indictment, or it has been indicted pending convictions, Paul Manafort. And there's God knows whatever else, because you've now got these four people plus the however many Russian nationals and that organization, plus you got to know. You know, the way you roll up groups with a, a RICO prosecution, uh, RICO is the federal statute, it's racketeering, uh, racketeer influence and corrupt organizations is the acronym. Um, but basically the way you do all this is that you first gather as much information as you can and then you pick off some low-level people and they kind of went a little bit high level in this case because they had Flynn fairly early. But like Papadopoulos, for example, he's a low level guy that you pick him off to give you more information. You then gather even more information to roll up the periphery. And then you take all of this information that you're gathering and this new information that you get as part of your you know, successive prosecutions. And you kind of fill in the middle and work your way up. So think of it as... I can't think of a good example, you know, but typically what people would say is when you're painting a picture, you paint the border first and then you paint the middle, you know, as if you're solving a jigsaw puzzle. Same type of deal, except you're doing the border at the bottom, you're then backfilling the middle, and then you're working the way up as a tower to get the rest of the people in the chain. So there are going to be more indictments to come. I, I will bet my next paycheck that Mueller has more indictments to come, and they will be of American co-conspirators who knew exactly what was going on. And there will be more Trump campaign officials who will be indicted. I can pretty much all but guarantee that. And I don't even have any inside information. I'm just telling you based on how this stuff looks and how I've seen government prosecutions work out. So I'm, uh, I'm hoping it's sooner rather than later, frankly, because I'm tired of all of this shit on a near daily basis. So folks, that's going to do it for this episode. As I mentioned, we are not getting into criminal justice fuckery or anything. I just wanted to talk about politics and we're hoping to have the criminal justice episode out to you on Thursday. 
Uh, thank you for sticking with us this far. Hopefully I've not lost too many of you. I know I kind of tread softly on politics and other episodes, so kind of going deep here. I'm not sure how many of you are yelling at your, uh, your radios, your iPads, or whatever else. Uh, but if you liked what you heard, please remember to give us a five-star rating on iTunes or Stitcher or leave us a written review. We love those. And on behalf of myself and Mike the Sound Guy, have a great four days, and we will talk to you again on Thursday. Take care.